Welcome to Houseplant Homebody. I'm your host, Holly, and I'm here to tell you all about my favorite thing, plants. You ready? Thanks for tuning in to the 41st episode on August 31st, 2021. Let's talk about landscape plants and design part two. Not only can you listen to the podcast, you can find more on houseplant-homebody.com. You can follow me on Instagram, Facebook, Pinterest at Houseplant Homebody LLC. And go check out the blog posts that are associated with all these podcasts as well. And don't forget to rate and review this podcast and make sure you're commenting, liking, sharing, and subscribing to this podcast, my blog, and social media posts. You can also help support your favorite podcasts and blog by joining me on Patreon for exclusive podcasts, early access to podcasts, and exclusive content. And if you just can't get enough, I send out a bi-monthly newsletter on the first of every other month, also with exclusive content and some updates on what's been happening in the previous months. All right, let's dive in. So I know this is mostly a houseplant podcast and the name is Houseplant Home Potty, but I've always really, really loved landscape plants and all plants really, but my first love was landscape plants. So I've said this before, but the main reason I started getting into houseplants was because I didn't own a yard to experiment with or have the space to even experiment with landscape plants. So I sold landscape plants and taught people about landscape for six, almost seven years when I worked at the garden center and I still continue to do that and I still continue learning and that knowledge has not left my brain, it has stuck. There are some things that might be like a name that I am now forgetting or something like that, but I still have a love and affinity for landscape plants. I still drive down the highway or drive down the road and I'm noticing people's yards still and I can point out everything when I go to a garden center, botanical garden, or anything like that. So I love landscape plants. So I thought I'd share the second episode with you, which is more focused in kind of maintaining your plants, common pests or diseases, like very common, and then design considerations really. So I also want you to keep in mind that I live in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, so southeastern Wisconsin. Specifically where I live, there's a hardiness zone of 5A. So for all of you people that live in the United States, the USDA has a hardiness zone map that tells you exactly what your zone is, and that determines what kind of plant material can live in your area. It's kind of like a global thing. I looked up even Canada and Europe to see if they had hardiness zone maps, and they do. But since I live in the U.S., I couldn't quite find the exact information, but I did know that they had maps as well. So it'll tell you kind of what zone you're in. Usually plant material at garden centers or plant shops will have a little tag in them that says what hardiness zone they're good for. So if something is hardiness zone 5 to 9 and you live in hardiness zone 6, then you can definitely buy that plant and it will survive through anything winter or weather-wise. So that's how that generally works. So make sure you're noting your hardiness zone. Again, I live in 5A. Zone 5 in general will work for this. Some even zone 6, 7, 4, and 3, if not higher than that. Some of the plants that I will be talking about or just generally referencing sometimes can survive in a lot more places just besides Wisconsin. So it's just the hardiness zone you have to pay attention to. Okay, like I said, this is episode two or part two of the landscape plants and design. So if you want information on different categories of landscape plants explained, um, what to consider when even choosing plants or even variety types that work in this southeastern Wisconsin zone 5a area, then definitely go back to episode one. It might even be beneficial to listen to episode one and come back to this one and listen to it just in case we all miss something (laughs) in discussing this. Let's jump into maintenance first and then we'll do the common diseases and pests and then we'll go into design which is my favorite part. So for maintenance there are a bunch of things you need to consider when looking at a landscape. Number one to me and I think to the plants too is watering. So newly installed plants will not survive unless they're watered properly. Your environment in general can also help this. So if you have a yard that's super dry, you need to water it more often, obviously depending on the plant. If you're 
growing a sedum or something that's drought tolerant, you don't need to water it as much. But in general, you need to be watering properly to keep your plants alive. And that is one of the things that you need to maintain the landscape almost no matter what. For example, when you're planting a brand new landscape or brand new plants, usually for the first full season or the first full year, you will need to supplement water to get the roots established and get the plant used to its new environment and kind of de-stress. The second and third year, you may need to provide supplemented watering if there's a drought or something like that, but usually they can withstand the environment at that point. There are some plants out there that will show signs that they need watering, like the leaves will start drooping or something like that. The, especially hydrangeas typically do that. Even the hydrangea macrophylla, like the endless summer collection, is really bad. The, they're very dramatic. The second they get thirsty, they start drooping. Anyway, signs like that will tell you that they need to be watered in, even in the second and third year. Or potentially longer. Sometimes the hydrangeas specifically are moisture lovers, so you might need to supplement it for that. But anyway, watering <laughs> is really the number one thing that you need to consider. The rest of this is up to you, honestly. So fertilizing is the next one, and I know several people that don't fertilize their lawns at all, but if you want the best potential for your plants, the best root system, the nicest foliage, the perfect flowers, fertilizer will definitely help in getting that. Like I always say in the houseplant podcast, there's really no wrong way of doing it. The only other, the only wrong way that I know of is over fertilizing. As long as you're following the instructions on packaging fertilizer, you shouldn't have that problem. So with a landscape, it's a little bit different than a houseplant fertilizer. So usually the fertilizers are slightly more aggressive than your houseplant fertilizer because they have such a shorter period of lifespan, I guess or seasonality to them so it's a little bit more aggressive even annual fertilizer too if you want your plant to focus on your foliage growth you would choose a fertilizer that goes with that if you want your plant to focus on its flower growth and get the maximum amount you can then you would choose a fertilizer to do that so you can also choose something that fits into your schedule so for example a water soluble fertilizer you need to reapply more often but then there's also slow release granular fertilizers that you only have to apply every few months or so depending on the product so there are lots of things to consider there but fertilizing is definitely something in the maintenance category that you will need to consider when you're choosing to do landscaping the next one is pruning and trimming and this is totally dependent on your plant type plant condition, the time of year, how you want it to look, all of those things. So you can trim perennial shrubs, annuals to encourage new growth. A lot of times with annuals, it's called deadheading. You take the whole flower off and it will encourage new growth a little bit faster instead of focusing on the dead flowers. So it can encourage new growth and reblooming. You can prune trees and shrubs and this could help with plant shaping or even promoting growth. Doing so can actually help spread diseases too if you have a problem with your shrub or perennial or anything like that. And we'll talk about that in a minute. But that's pruning and trimming. Really up to you what you want to do. For example, if you have a really young, small plant and you just want it to keep growing bigger, you don't necessarily need to prune it every single year. So just something to consider when planting. The next thing is weeding. Totally up to you. But in a designed landscape bed, the last thing you want is unexpected plants invading your wonderful design. So you want to make sure those weeds are gone. Some people use sprays to get rid of the weeds. Some people will hand dig up weeds. Some people use a weed barrier. Some people will just use mulch and lay that. So there's lots of things to help prevent it and get rid of them. Up to how you want to do it. Again, there's really no right or wrong way. I'm not going to judge anyone for doing anything. I've done it all. So do what works for you and what you want to do. If you like all the weeds in all of your landscape, keep them. Up to you. Currently, all of our planting beds are full of weeds because I haven't been able to. So it's been bothering me. Yes. Do I want to? Yes. Do I have time? Not really, but I'll get to it eventually. <laughs> the next thing is just clean up. So this is really dependent on what you do to what, what time you have and whatnot. So where I live, at least in Wisconsin, there is fall, this lovely season that makes everything die and then winter happens. So there's fall cleanup. And in this case, it's a matter of pruning shrubs, trimming trees. You do normally do that in winter. And then 
perennial cleanup. So all the perennials that are spent, you can cut them back. Some people will do it in spring too. I like to leave up perennials into spring just to kind of give an extra layer of protection just in case. But totally up to you what you do. This can also help prevent diseases, which we'll talk about more, like I said before. But trimming your plants, cleaning up those plants, and getting rid of the foliage will help prevent some diseases. So overall, that is maintenance. Watering is most important. Everything beyond that is up to you. Fertilizing, pruning, trimming, weeding, and cleanup. If you have any additional questions on this, feel free to reach out to me. I know it's not obvious to a lot of people. I know I was talking to my sister about this recently. It's just basic things that like to me is a no-brainer, but to the person that hasn't studied it for so many years, it's not obvious. So if you have any questions, let me know. But that is the basics of what maintaining a landscape looks like. Okay, let's jump into common pests and diseases. This is totally dependent on the area you live. You might have a totally different set of pests than we do in Wisconsin or Illinois or something like that. So this is specifically for this hardiness zone 5A Wisconsin people, Illinois people. Illinois, we had the same issues too. I'm sure the Midwest in general has these problems. And I'm sure even in other parts, you have these problems too, but you just might have a whole nother set of issues. <laughs> so I'm just going to briefly go into a couple different pests and then I'll name a few that are also a common problem, but not as big of a deal around here. So the first one is deer and rodents. I put these in the same category because they do very similar damage to plants. This is the number one issue when I worked in the garden center that people had coming in. Deer eat everything. Rabbits eat everything. People wanted deer-resistant, rabbit-resistant plants. Guess what? They don't exist. <laughs> so if a deer or rodent is hungry, they will eat whatever the heck they want, almost no matter what. You can use a deterrent, you can use a spray or anything like that. If they're hungry enough, they will just eat through it. So I just want to put that as a fair warning. I even think I said that in one of the other podcasts too. But if they're hungry, they'll eat it. There's no getting around it. So, there are things to help deter them, potentially. They're just not foolproof. None of these are. Just keep that in mind. So, the best thing to do and probably the most successful is a physical barrier. So, having a fence or having some kind of cage or something around certain plants that they like the most would be the best thing to do. The issue is you made this pretty landscape and now you're going to cover it up. So it's not the most conducive to a well-designed landscape design, but it does the trick. So for example, my sister and my brother-in-law bought a chokeberry and we put it in an area that was had a little bit higher moisture and then all of a sudden it whittled down to almost nothing. <laughs> the rabbits were eating it like crazy and my brother-in-law decided to put up hardware cloth, which is just like a cage kind of, or a little fence around the plant, and the plant just came back to life. So obviously the rabbit was an issue. They were putting down granular, but it was getting expensive, and it was just getting to be too much to maintain. But putting that fence up until the plant is a little bit more mature was helping. Especially young plants, deer and rabbits really like. It's really tender. It's really juicy stuff for them to eat. So that was a really young plant. So once it gets more mature, probably won't be as tasty because it'll be a lot harder, but that's what they did. The other thing you can do is you can use a spray or you can use those granulars. Sometimes it is a bit more expensive. It is more maintenance because you have to reapply and that kind of stuff. So the advantage to it, though, is it's not obstructing anything and you can fully see your landscape. So there are products that are actually predator's urine, which can help deter any rodent or deer. Sometimes there are products that have coyote urine. Since they're a predator, they don't like to go near that and they know not to go near that. You can also use products that have kind of like a spicy or very, very fragrant smell to them or taste, too. There was an organic product in the garden center that I worked at. It was called I Must Garden. They had a whole organic line and there was a deer deterrent and it was, I, the only thing I can think to say is spicy, but it had, it was really, really, really fragrant, which is usually a good deterrent for rodents and deer. There are a ton of homemade recipes out there 
if you want to go more the organic side and you want to try to save some money, you can mix. I've seen people do hot peppers diluted in water. I've seen cayenne pepper put into like annual beds to get rid of chipmunks or squirrels, that kind of thing. Also, if you have a dog, in general, that helps prevent pests from coming along too, but not always. For example, I have a dog, Bruno. You guys have probably seen him on Instagram, but we still have rabbits in the yard. Granted, they're not eating anything, but there are still rabbits in our yard all the time. So it doesn't necessarily get rid of them completely, but it, they haven't really eaten anything from what I've noticed of the new plants. So that is for deer and rodents in general. So hopefully that helps there. The next thing is Japanese beetles, and this is the only other pest I was going to go into detail about, but this one is really, really bad, and we always had a problem with it in the garden center on roses and linden trees. I know it affects a lot more plants than that, but those were the two that no matter what, we always had issues with. So obviously, they chew on the flowers, they chew on the leaves, and they just destroy your plant. They're not going to kill it, but it's going to look bad and it's just going to get smaller and smaller. <laughs> so there are preventative sprays to help with this if you like to go the spraying route. I know Bonide has a Japanese beetle spray in general that can help prevent and help treat the issue for roses and for linden trees. But you could also use traps as well. So we had really, really good luck with traps at the garden center. We would set them up in a couple of places around the rose section and we would trap hundreds of them. It was also a Bonide product that you just hang on like a little hook in the yard and the beetles would go to that instead of the flowers. So not a lot of explaining for that, but it was a really big problem for us. And that was the other main thing. So there are obviously a lot of other pests that are issues and I'm just going to name a few. So emerald ash borer is basically taking out most of the ash trees. If you're maintaining your yard or had an ash tree anywhere or heard about it, you know about it more than likely. There are no ash being sold at nurseries, garden centers, because there hasn't been a hybrid that I have seen that has been able to combat it. So there's that. Tent caterpillar. We actually had issues with this in the garden center, mostly on crab apples or fruit trees. These are preventable and they are treatable. There is scale, which is also actually a disease or an insect, sorry, an insect that can be on houseplants. Slugs. Um... The tastiest thing for slugs are hostas. There is maple gall, which is little tiny red dots all over a maple. By the time it gets kind of the red gall, the insect has come and gone. It just looks funny. Nothing like super wrong with it. And white flies was another thing. A lot of times it was in high moisture perennials that didn't have a ton of airflow. And that's when that happened. So a lot of times white flies were happening on the perennials that were in the big greenhouses. Also preventable, also something that isn't always duplicated in your own landscape. A lot of times it's just housed in the greenhouses. And then once there's more airflow, you're planting your plant, there shouldn't be much of, much of an issue. Okay, let's get into diseases next. I have three here I'm going to list, but there are several others, obviously. So the first one is rust. And you can identify by, hmm, I wonder what color it's going to be. It's going to be rust-colored dots covering the leaves or needles because this can affect evergreens too. It can affect perennials, deciduous trees, fruit trees, evergreen trees. And rust isn't fatal, but it can cause your plant to decline much faster than it normally would in a season change. Pruning the leaves that are infected will help the spread. Completely disposing of the leaves in fall will also help the spread and prevent it from coming back next year. And you could also use a product with copper fungicide or even a neem oil to prevent the spread from returning and prevent spread in general. So I want to reiterate the completely disposing of leaves in fall. So some people think this means burning your leaves if you can do that in your area, which is not true. The disease, the fungus basically can still be in your lawn. It can still be in the air and it can still be present. So if you want to help prevent this, completely get rid of the leaves, throw them out. Whatever service you use to get rid of leaves or if you pack them up in a bag and send them off, 
do that. Don't burn your leaves. Don't chop them with the lawnmower because more than likely that fungus is still going to be in the soil. It's still going to be taken up into the tree. It could still happen next year. So that's rust. There are several other names for rust that also include the name rust, but there's like apple rust and a bunch of other ones, but specific to different trees, but rust in general looks the same, acts the same, does the same thing. The next one is powdery mildew. This is very, very common. It's literally a white looking powdery fungus that lives on leaves that have a very high moisture rate and a lack of airflow to them. So you can follow literally the exact same steps as for us to get rid of this and prevent this. So pruning the leaves if they're infected, completely disposing of those leaves in fall, even using the copper fungicide or neem oil, that all can help prevent and treat this issue. More than likely, the best thing to do with rust and mildew, powdery mildew in general, in my experience, is trimming off the badly infested or infected areas. But when you do that, you have to make sure you're cleaning your pruners. Otherwise, you're just spreading the issue. I'll talk about that in a second. The, the third one I wanted to go over was tar spot. So this is most common on maples. And I think it's been on literally every maple I think I've ever seen in a landscape. It is so, so common. People don't even think twice about it. It will not kill your tree at all. It, they just look like black dots all over your leaves. Sometimes you don't notice it till you get up close. It is preventable, but once you have the black dots, it's not necessarily treatable. So the best thing to do is, again, completely get rid of the leaves when they drop. That way, in hopes next year... There won't be as much tar spot, if at all, and then it will get better and better as years go on because the disease or the fungus isn't in the area anymore. So that's tar spot, just literally black dots all over the leaves. Usually they're pretty big. Usually they're, you know, anywhere from a quarter to half an inch wide. Okay, the, the one thing I wanted to say if you were planning on pruning anything for any of these um, that I mentioned was that you need to cl clean your pruners. So by that, I mean in between cutting or if you're moving to a new plant, you wanna make sure you're cleaning off your pruners and disinfecting them. You can literally do this by dipping them in bleach. That will do that. Bleach does not negatively affect your plants. We used to do that all the time in the garden center if we had issues with our own landscape plants. For example, we had a nine bark that was growing in our yard as a a show plant sometimes it would get powdery mildew and we would chop off the really bad parts but we would just take a small bucket of bleach out with us and dip the pruners in the bleach in between each cut so that will also help the spread of the issue some other diseases that are out there are dutch elm disease which there are elm trees now that are resistant to Dutch elm disease. You just have to ask the garden center you're shopping at, make sure someone is knowledgeable of it. And then we had a couple, um, a few people in the garden center that knew what they were talking about. And garden centers won't be selling an elm tree specifically that is being affected by Dutch elm disease because that means their inventory is gonna be cut and it's gonna be compromised. So they're not gonna be growing elm trees in their property unless it's gonna be resistant to it. The next one is oak wilt. This wasn't as common, but it did show up once in a while. And there is scab as well. There's canker and there's blight. There's a lot more than that, but those were the ones that came up the most. Okay, so that's pests and diseases, but let's go into actual landscape design, the fun part. All right, so there are several factors when considering for your landscape, and I'm just gonna go step by step 
in literally what my thought process is when I am doing a landscape and when I'm talking to clients or family or friends I'm doing a landscape for. So the first one is functionality or curb appeal. Nine times out of 10, the people I talk to, it's curb appeal, not necessarily functionality. But if you're considering functionality, you want to create a privacy screening, you're trying to provide shade, a source of food, or encouraging wildlife, that will significantly change the plant options that you need. So if you're trying to get a source of food in your yard, that really narrows it down. If you're encouraging certain wildlife like butterflies, that also narrows it down. So keep that in mind. If there is an actual function to it, then make sure you're voicing that to whoever's going to help you with the design or what you're researching online. If it's curb appeal, I mean the sky's the limit. The only thing is considering your microclimates in your yard and just briefly, microclimate basically means that in your yard, you can have different conditions in different spots in your yard. So your house is sitting in one direction. So let's say your house faces east and there is a side of your house that has a tree and it's the north side. So it's really a lot cooler and shadier over there versus the south side is completely exposed to sun. Those are all different microclimates. So the north side of the house can hold a bunch of different plants that that south side can't and vice versa. So you want to make sure that you are considering all of that and kind of the different steps I'm going to be talking about now will go into those microclimates deeply. It's not just sunlight. So again, number one, functionality or curb appeal. You can do both if you want to do encouraging wildlife while trying to create curb appeal or or even providing food for yourself while creating curb appeal, you definitely can. But just make sure you know what your goal is in the landscape. The second one is sunlight. What level of sunlight do you have throughout the yard? This grows goes into those microclimates, understanding what pattern the sun is rising versus setting, where the sun is at all times of year, if there's a tree blocking it, if it's filtered light, you know, that kind of thing, considering all of that. Is there a house obstructing it? By like two o'clock, is the building next door obstructing it? All things you need to consider. The best advice I have to understand your sunlight is at different parts in your day, maybe on a weekend or something, or when you're home, go outside and just look. See what things are happening. Even take pictures to understand where shadows are casting or trees are preventing light from getting and whatnot. So, Sunlight is number two. Number three is moisture level. So make sure you're questioning if there's ever sitting water on the property or if there's completely dry spots. Like for example, you're going to plant a big giant landscape bed, but you notice the grass in that spot does not grow. Well, then you know it's a dry spot. You're going to have to water a bit more. Or if you notice after it rains, there's standing water. Well, then you know you need plants that need to handle a higher moisture level. Number three was moisture level or watering. Four is soil. So at least in the area that I live and that I landscaped, for the most part, we've run into a lot of properties that have a ton of clay soil, very heavy. And usually we always amend the soil with a compost or something like that to help with drainage and allow for healthier root systems to be growing. So Another factor is to consider a soil's pH level. So if you're trying to plant near or under like a spruce tree, because the needles are falling, it's actually more acidic under that soil. So you might have to amend it or do something conducive to help the plants that are being planted underneath there or be planting plants in general that like acidic soil. The next one is how much are you willing to maintain? How much work are you willing to put in this planting bed? You don't want to go through all of this work, all of this money to realize you're going to end up putting work into it every single weekend. If you need low maintenance plants because you have other things in your life that you need to focus on, then make sure you're only looking for low maintenance plants. Don't like decide that you can have a plant that you need to be spraying or treating all the time versus a plant you'll never have to do anything with maintenance wise just because the way it looks or something so maintenance is really important to consider and based on your lifestyle you'll kind of know what you need most people like to go for low maintenance and there are a ton of houseplants out there for low maintenance in general some more than others but that's most of the time what people are going for number six is any other environmental things to consider so it's really good to notice whether or not you have 
I don't know, higher winds somewhere. So for example, here, Japanese maples are beautiful plants, but they are on the edge of hardiness zone. Some are, some, some are zone five, which is us, but some are zone six. So they need slightly warmer winters to get through the winter. If you have higher winds, high winter winds, they're not going to work in your yard, at least in my area. If you don't have like any wind and it's protected by a building, it might work. So that's something to think about. If you're planting by a road and you have you live in a place where there's snow, they salt roads. Salt affects plants. It does not work for some plants. So that's also something to consider. Another factor is if you're going to top dress your landscape bed with something, mulch or rocks or anything. If you're using rock in your landscape, rocks are very, very hot and make the area a lot warmer. So you have to consider, okay, I might have to water a bit more or I might have to buy slightly more drought tolerant plants if I'm going to use rocks. Or just in general, noticing if there's any pests, like if you notice there's deer in your yard or if you notice there's rabbits or anything that are there happening, you know, quite often, you might want to take a little bit of a preventative measure or really keep an eye on it once you get the plants in. And the last question that I think is one of the most important is, what do you like? So before you go into a garden center or you're talking to someone that you're designing a landscape with, my best advice is honestly just to go on Pinterest, go on gardening websites, and find an aesthetic you like. So if you just type in landscape bed or landscape designs on Pinterest, so much stuff comes up. You can type in, if you like a really formal landscape, type that in. If you like all monochromatic, the same color flowers, type that in. Bring in those pictures and show whoever is designing your landscape what you like. It'll be a lot easier for them and a lot easier to communicate what you like that way. So not only aesthetic what you like, but understanding if you find some flowers you can't live without or some foliage colors or textures you absolutely love or if there's a certain variety that you definitely want in your landscape, maybe check the hardiness zone first, but then bring it up and say, hey, I love this. I want this. How can we incorporate this? Also considering blooming time. So if you want something that mostly blooms in spring or mostly blooms in summer, maybe consider that. If you want something that blooms all year round or just different seasonality, keep that in mind too. Okay, so those are kind of the seven different factors to consider when thinking about landscape design and what I think about landscape design. So I have several other landscape tips I'm just going to go through. To me, it's no-brainer stuff, but like I said, it's just super common things that I think about that I'm literally checking off a list in my head as I go. So we'll go into that next, and then we'll go into the Instagram Q&A. Okay, so the things... That might be helpful for landscape tips here. So number one, note your hardiness zone. I know I've gone over this a few times. No matter where you live, you should be able to find that information and make sure you're choosing a plant material that is included within your hardiness zone. So if you live in five and you really want that Japanese maple that's only hardiness, hardiness zone six, more than likely that garden center is not going to guarantee it and you're going to be out $300 when it dies next year, even though you were warned by the hardiness zone. So shop with that in mind. If you want to take that risk, go for it. But shop with that in mind no matter what. The next one is just always look at the mature plant size. So usually you want to create a tiered effect, kind of a depth effect with your landscape plants. So that way the shortest plants aren't being obscured by the largest ones. Your largest ones are going to be kind of the back of the plants. Then the shorter and shorter it gets as it gets closer to the actual line of sight. So keep that in mind. The actual mature size is going to determine what can fit where too. So if you see a plant that's literally a foot wide and a foot tall, well, guess what? That thing could possibly get eight feet tall and wide in a few years, and that might take up your whole space. So always look at the mature plant size. Never look at the size of what it is currently. The next is consider seasonal blooming. So I know I mentioned this, but just think about it. If you want things to bloom in every season, make sure you're choosing plants that actually do bloom in every season or at least spread out the different plants that have different blooming. So you can have spring blooming bulbs, you can have spring blooming perennials, and then summer blooming perennials and shrubs, etc., etc. You can even have 
winter interest if you want to like a red twig dogwood has red twigs it always has interest through winter even when the leaves are down so fun factors there the next one which is not always true but nine times out of ten i found to be true is that odd numbers almost always look better so if you're considering a space strictly by the square footage like let's say you have three feet to work with and your plants get about a foot and a half wide two is gonna look weird no matter what, I, it just it might look weird unless you're trying to like anchor something. But if this this little plant is in the front, it might look weird. So sometimes choosing three works better. Totally dependent on your landscape. I have used even number things before. For example, my sister's yard. I did a big landscape bed, and if you follow my stories, you've seen her her landscape bed before. But along her garage, it was a really thin, long landscape bed, and I did one focal point which that's the next thing. Choose a focal point. Focal point hibiscus, perennial hibiscus. I did sedum laying all the way in the front of the bed. So I'm not quite sure how many that was, but since there were so many, I didn't count how many there were. So the hibiscus was one. And then I did two bobo hydrangeas on either end of the bed. And then I did two baptisia next to each of those hydrangeas. And then I did kind of a, its own little section. I did a summer suite with two penstemon and then three peonies in front of it. So like I said, odd numbers usually works for the most part, but there are some moments where you're anchoring a plant, like anchoring that focal plant of the hibiscus where two works really well. And if you plant that third one, it's going to take away from the focal point. So again, the next one is focal point. <laughs> So you're not necessarily picking one plant all the time. For example, if you want a line of arborvitae, that's your focal point, And then the plants in front of it are just going to complement it if you're planting in front of it, obviously. So just you could also do if you have a larger landscape and you need a section that's a focal point, you could do three large shrubs as the focal point and shorter stuff around it. So consider that. Another one is to think about color. So I think blooming plants in general are beautiful no matter what, but complementary colors are really pleasing to the eye and work really well in a landscape. So the best example I've ever had of this is honestly Chicago Botanical, Chicago Botanic Garden. I always say botanical, it's Botanic Garden. Botanical? Botanic Garden. Oh my God, whatever. Either way, <laughs> outside they have along their pond Russian sage, which is purple, and yellow blooming coreopsis, and it is the most beautiful thing ever. I'll actually, in this section, I'll post a picture of it. I love it so much. It just works so well. So, complementary colors definitely work out really, really well. Now, sometimes that isn't necessarily conducive because, you know, sometimes it's hard to find certain colored plants. For example, it's hard to find blue all the time, but, you know, something to consider when you are planting. I know when I was doing my sister's landscape, that was important to them too, just to have kind of similar, not monochromatic, but warm colors together. So they had pinks, reds, and yellows, and whites mostly. So totally up to you and your design aesthetic, but that's something to think about. The next thing is map out your landscape bed and lay out the plants before you actually make it. So if you're making a new bed, obviously, if you have an existing one, still lay out your plants. So when you're creating a new landscape bed, you want to make sure you kept in mind what those plants are going to be when they are mature. So you can kind of lay out based on that. You don't want to plant all the plants two feet from each other when the plant's going to get five feet wide. That's not going to work. So it really helps you visualize where it's going to end up in the end. You can even spray paint circles of how big they're going to be if you're really meticulous and you want to understand what it's going to look like. This also helps with general airflow. So this will help prevent diseases or fungus that might happen if you are laying out plants wide enough from each other that that will help that as well. By doing all this laying out and whatever, deciding where your bed's going to go, you're really going to allow yourself to know and visualize what's actually happening in the landscape if you need to add anything, if you need to subtract anything, or really alter the design at all, you're going to know that. Or if you need to make the bed smaller, bigger, yada yada. Okay, the last thing I put on the things to consider was obstructions in your yard. A lot of people forget about this, so just observe your yard from every angle. 
meaning take note of roof lines, take note of power lines. If you want a certain view, don't obstruct it. Make sure you're not getting in the way of fences or make sure you're not building too, you know, planting a tree next to your foundation. It's going to rip up your foundation. So all things to think about when doing a landscape. To me, it's just obvious, but you know, if you have a small yard, you have a power line, you know, running diagonally through your backyard and you want a maple tree back there. Well, that's not going to work because the maple's going to get, you know, 50 feet tall. The power line's only 20 feet up. So you're going to have an issue there. So those are all my other landscape tips. So let's go into the Instagram Q&A now. Okay, so I also want to reiterate that um, this is Instagram and Facebook mostly, but I've been getting a lot of responses on Instagram instead, but that's totally fine. I asked all of you followers if you had any specific plant questions or anything I could address specifically for the podcast, and I think it's been super helpful because it's been asking questions that I might not bring up in the podcast that someone might be curious about. That way, they always have the answer to their question in the blog or in the podcast episode. So let's get into it because I did get a, a decent amount this time. So the first one is good plans for extremely rocky soil. And I know this person's in Michigan. So there are a ton of plants that actually work in rocky soil. So in my area, I have more of a clay soil, but I know she she had mentioned that she dug up a landscape and somehow there was lava rock or rock from a different landscape plan a long time ago that was buried underneath there. So instead of removing all of those rocks, she's trying to find something that is more conducive to that. So I'm just going to list off a bunch of them, but it's just something to also research. Your local garden center might also know specifically what would be good for this, but you should be able to find these, especially in Michigan, because I looked at her hardiness zone. I think she's in the Detroit area and she was zone six. So all of these are also in this area. So, so plants would be sedum, hens and chicks, candy tuft, lavender, milkweed, columbine, bellflower, baptisia, aka false indigo, grolo sumac, butterfly weed, coreopsis, coneflower, catmint, black-eyed susan, lamb's ear, yucca, creeping juniper, prairie drop seed grass, little blue stem grass, aster, salvia, and more. Most of those are more drought tolerant. So that's going to be the plants that you're going to be focusing on if you're trying to do a rocky soil. Since the soil won't be holding as much moisture because of the rocks, you need more drought tolerant plants, which are what I named. So that's that question. The next one is pest deterring plants. I can only mostly give you annuals that will help you prevent bugs mostly. So there's really no plant specifically that deters like rabbits and deer or anything like that. There's some plants out there that they don't like as much, but if you're looking for a mosquito repellent or something like that, you can use some of these plants. So geranium, chrysanthemums, which chrysanthemums can also be perennial as well, depending on the one you buy. The ones you get as annuals at the plant shops aren't necessary, not, not necessarily perennial. Sometimes they work, but they're not specific perennial. They're mostly annual. Dill, chives, lemongrass, marigolds. Marigolds smell terrible. I don't know if anyone else has this opinion, but I know my old coworker Marianne, I always made fun of her because I always just hated the smell of marigold. She was the annual buyer. I should probably reference that, but I just did not like them. They just smelled like skunks all the time to me. Okay, side note. Um, thyme, allium, citronella plants, rosemary, nasturtiums are all kind of pest repelling, deterring. Allium can be planted as a perennial as well. And besides the chrysanthemums, that's really the only one that I know of. Okay, the next question is, how do you physically create a landscape bed? And I'm just going to go through this really quickly. One, lay out your design. And if you want to spray paint the area, you want to dig out, do that. The next one is dig up all the grass with a shovel or a sod cutter. Sometimes it's beneficial to keep some of the sod pieces just in case you alter a landscape or something. So just keep it off to the side for now. And you just want to skim kind of the top of your soil and just get the grass up. The next one, which to me is optional because I don't do it all the time, but I do know people that have done it and it works just fine then too. You can rototill your bed and loosen up the soil for planting. So I don't usually do this for the whole bed. I usually just dig a larger hole around the plant. That way it loosens up the soil around the root system and I amend the soil. The next one, number four, is place your plants in their spaces. 
dig the holes for your plants and as I always do dig slightly wider than the pot and then make sure the plant once it's in the ground is slightly above soil grade and then you can backfill if you're using an amended soil so if you have a clay soil for example like we do you want to backfill with two-thirds of your own soil and combine about one-third of a compost soil that way the soil is amended there's a lot healthier soil around it and then the roots have something a little bit easier to get into and established but using two-thirds of your own soil is important because it's got to get used to what is there and that ratio totally depends on your soil so if you have super rocky soil you might want to add more of an amendment but totally depends number five is top dressing after you plant so this is also super you pick what you want to do kind of thing so mulch is a natural weed barrier it also provides nitrogen for your plants and it helps hold moisture so to me it's a no-brainer mulch is the best possible thing for your plants because it has so many positive things for your plants but you can also top dress with stone so in order to do this though you need to lay down a a fabric weed barrier sometimes they have plastic but honestly fabric is a lot better because it allows for moisture to still get into the soil and it's easier to install because it's thicker um so this way your stones don't sink into the soil and it's also a, an actual weed barrier as well so stones do not provide any benefit to your plants whatsoever if anything it actually makes it less beneficial stone heats up a lot and it can cause some scorching on leaves, which is basically like burning on your leaves. And it can, it just doesn't help with holding moisture for your plants like mulch does. So I would always recommend mulch, but the, the only benefit to stone is that you don't need to replace it. So if you want less maintenance, stone is there for you. Now mulch in general will decompose over time. For about two to three years, you can kind of rake it and it will look brand new, but you will eventually have to replace it and get new mulch. So that is how you physically create a landscape bed. The next question is now that it's becoming fall, what should I do with my plants? This is really dependent on what plants you have, how old they are, how big they are, and what kind of look you want. So if you want a really manicured landscape, in fall you'll be shaping your shrubs and cutting back perennials and just making sure everything is clean cut, ready to go. Super dependent on the plants though. So for example, if you are someone that's okay with leaving them, doesn't want to cut them in fall, make sure they get through the winter kind of thing, but you have, for example, lilacs, you don't want to be trimming lilacs in early spring because you might be cutting off all the buds. If you have any specific questions on, hey, I have this plant, this plant, this plant, should I be cutting it back? Let me know. I can let you know. Feel free to message me, email me. There's like a million ways to contact me, so just get in touch. I'll let you know. But really dependent on the plants you have. Usually in fall, people are trimming shrubs. If you want to prune trees, it's in, at least around here, it's best to do it in winter when they're dormant. Deciduous trees specifically, because those are dormant, obviously. And then perennials, you can cut back almost to the ground depending on what your perennial is, um, but it's okay to leave it up until spring too for just that, a little extra protection. The next thing is what if I wanted to plant something in fall, what is appropriate? So at the garden center, they planted trees until basically the ground was frozen. So right around Thanksgiving, which is totally fine because they go dormant um, and the root ball and the root system is in the ground and totally fine. Shrubs, because the root system is so much smaller than a, a big tree, like a, you know, a big root ball tree, they're a little bit more fragile. And then perennials are even more delicate. So shrubs you can typically still plant into you know october sometimes people have planted in november as well and they've done fine perennials i wouldn't go too late since there's not a ton of time for the root system become established and for the plant to be okay through winter if you're going to plant these plants later into fall make sure you're going to be using a mulch at the base when it gets colder you want to kind of mound the mulch up at the base of these plants to help hold in whatever's happening at the time. So if it's snowing a lot, then you want to make sure that your plant stays frozen. If it's not doing anything, it's mildly warm, you want to make sure it stays like that the longest. So it's the fluctuation in temperature and freezing and thawing that actually kills 
plants in our area of the great winter season. So that was a slight tangent, but <laughs> I wouldn't go too far with perennials, trees and shrubs you can usually plant later. And then there are spring blooming bulbs you should be planting in fall. Typically when garden centers start bringing bulbs in, maybe wait just slightly longer until it gets a bit cooler outside to plant those and then you should be good. If it's too warm and the bulbs are being planted, they might rot or it might not be conducive to the winter months that they need. So these bulbs include tulips, daffodils, crocus, hyacinth, allium. I know there's more, but those are the basics of what I know. So that's it guys. Thanks for listening to episode 41 of Houseplant Homebody, all about landscape plans and design, part two. Don't forget to check out the blog post that corresponds with this podcast. If you go to houseplant-homebody.com and go to the blog tab, you'll find it there. Also, there are links to Instagram, Facebook, and Pinterest at Houseplant Homebody LLC on my website. And don't forget to rate and review this podcast and make sure you're doing all of the commenting, liking, sharing, and subscribing to the podcast, my blog, and social media posts. I love to hear from all of you and what you've learned through your own experience or through this podcast. And you can also help support your favorite podcast and blog by joining me on Patreon for early access to podcasts, exclusive content, and exclusive podcasts. So your support means everything to me and I am very excited to keep bringing you plant bios and information. And don't forget to check back every other Tuesday for more podcasts and corresponding blog posts. From one houseplant homebody to another, see you next time. Hi people. I just was gonna stop on quick because I normally do. And just let you know that if you have any landscape questions, feel free to reach out to me. No matter where you're at, I should be able to help you. If not, I can find a resource to get you the answer. So you're welcome to message me on Facebook or Instagram or through my website. I get those notifications all the time too. Um, but I also wanted to let you know that if you're a houseplant lover listening to this podcast, I don't want you to get deterred by this one. So as a plant lover, you can actually learn a ton from landscape plants. So it's really, really fun to be with the people I know that love houseplants that have over time also loved landscape plants because then they're, they're discovering day to day outside there's different plants that they notice. So for example, my friend Shay and I both worked at that garden center Breezy together and we go to botanical gardens all the time and we can still plant out, point out different plants in the landscape. It's just so much fun. It's just like walking through a houseplant shop and knowing all the plants, but it's literally walking out your backyard and knowing what's out there. So it's really fun to learn. Um, but if you guys have any questions, let me know. Otherwise, it's probably, I think I'm going to do like one landscape specific plant podcast around my wedding next year because I'm using um, a, a perennial that actually works around here um, for our flowers. But besides that, I probably won't do a ton of landscape podcasts. So if you have questions in the meantime, even though I'm not talking about it, let me know. All right. I'll talk to you guys later. Bye-bye. Have a great week.